Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined by Melbourne journalist Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and the lady sitting across from me, Zara McDonald. Hello. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the machinations of celebrity feuds and why one between Kim Kardashian and Taylor Swift is over for good plus the icon that is Anna Wintour and how trolling online will soon be considered illegal. But first, Zara, how was your week? The week was good, actually. It was, I have to say, a relatively overwhelming week. Mm -hmm. I think that's the right word to use. Um, Coming off the last podcast episode that we did, which we finished quite strongly, I am deliberately trying to be a bit chirpy at this time because we ended on a bit of a low for good reason. But the response from people listening to that podcast was completely overwhelming. Did you find that too? Yeah. The response to the Ultratune segment that we did last week was by far the biggest response we've had to anything we've covered on this podcast. Thousands of people shared the memes Thousands. on their Instagram story in particular, and it really prompted Ultratune to issue an explanation as to why they choose the men that they choose for their ads. They did, because I think there were so many complaints to the Advertising Standards Bureau, which I imagine is from a lot of you guys. Um, they were forced to explain. I didn't quite understand nor appreciate the explanation, but regardless, I guess the conversation is starting. I mean, these kinds of things don't change overnight um but just the sheer amount of you that shared that on instagram michelle and i sort of have this philosophy that we want to make sure that we're responding to every single inbox on our instagram and we were just like drowning in them i'm so sorry if we didn't get back to every single one of you we tried so hard it was a mammoth effort on the monday and the tuesday with how many of you got behind it and I know that we just spammed a lot of you with orange hearts because we we're like, oh, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> you guys are amazing. We couldn't believe how many of you really got behind it and wanted to educate your own family and friends about it. And I think it is going to be an, an ongoing conversation for us when we need to check back in with it. Um, so rest assured, we will keep working on that. As for the rest of the week, um, it was pretty, you know, it was not much happened, if I'm perfectly honest, just a lot of work. I have to say the best thing I consumed this week was an episode of long form again with Julie Snyder. Julie Snyder is the producer or the person that started Serial. Oh, so okay. she went into how Serial was created, how they considered the response. And I think the most interesting part for me, for those who have listened to Serial, and it was a cult podcast when it came out, will understand how big it was because everybody listened to it. And I found it so interesting how terrifying they found that response, Sarah Koenig and Julie Snyder, because they are two journos by trade to have something go completely viral, so far out of their control, they were completely terrified and just bunkered down and they hated it. And I thought that was fascinating to me. I listened to Sarah Koenig on another episode of something recently. It might have been the cut on Tuesdays. Oh, she was on that. I haven't listened yet. Yeah, that was incredible as well. I think the story behind Serial and how it's transformed their lives since is great, but it's also quite daunting. Well, it just proved to me that success for different people is defined in different ways. I think you would assume if you're launching a podcast into the stratosphere that the the bigger the reach, the better. But for them, I think it wasn't so simple as that, that they wanted to control the story. They knew it was a very sensitive story. They were very sensitive to criticism as well. It was a fascinating listen for anyone that's interested in Serial and how they make that podcast. I would 1000% recommend. It is so interesting. Mm. How was your week? Great. I watched the Fire documentary on yes, Netflix. Of course. So based, did I. Based on Fire Festival, of course. That has to be my number one recommendation. I keep recommending this to everyone I'll have a conversation with. It is so interesting to see how 
a scam artist operates and how he can convince entire circles of people around him to think that he is the bee's knees and amazing at what he does when really he's just full of bullshit. What interested me is because after that story went viral like a year or two ago and I've used the word viral twice in the last <laughs> 10 minutes and I'm the one that hates that word <laughs> but it's true I think. Um, when that story went viral there was so much criticism towards people like Kendall Jenner and Bella Hadid who um, advertised the festival and for me what that documentary, it became so clear that if employees of the company didn't even realise it was a scam, how was anybody else meant to? Mm, yeah, and even Ja Rule now distancing himself from everything and saying it wasn't a scam and that this could happen to anyone is just... Ja Rule did not come out of that documentary particularly <sighs> well. Ja Rule looks like a total idiot, especially in the business meeting at the very, very end that they show where he's saying that it wasn't a scam and nothing they did nothing wrong, they're totally innocent. The best part was when someone said, you know, that's fraud and he said, no, 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 it's just false ad. Advertising. <laughs> Everyone's like, eh, one and the same. Do you mean fraud? <laughs> exactly. Let's get on to our first segment for the week, though. It was a smaller story. I didn't see it around a heap, but I do think it's an interesting one. The feud between Kim Kardashian and Taylor Swift is officially over. And that has nothing to do with the women themselves, really. Not at all. So Taylor Swift, for those who missed it, recently changed record labels, which is a really crucial part about this story. She was with one record label for about 12 or so years. I've got the details. Please do. Big Machine Records for 12 years. (laughs) I just wonder who's starting a record company and calling it Big Machine Records. Yeah. Anyway, she then moved to Universal (laughs) Group in November 2018. Continue. So Universal, for the record pardon the pun, is <laughs> the owner of E and obviously E is the owner of the Kardashians, there basically. There we go. There's the trail. So I found this story very peculiar because the way that this story came out into the media was very interesting. Mm-hmm. So it started with Kim Kardashian doing a makeup video, right? Yes. And in the background was playing Taylor Swift's single, Delicate. Obviously not an accidental choice of music. Absolutely not. And then a couple of weeks later, she was on the Andy Cohen show and was asked if you were stuck somewhere with Taylor Swift or Drake, who would you pick? And she chose Taylor Swift and said she has no beef with her. Beef? Did I just say beef? You did. No beef with her anymore. Said and it's totally moving on and the past is the past, basically. Which is very interesting given that Taylor and Kanye West, obviously Kim Kardashian's husband, have had this ongoing feud for 10 years now. It, date back, it dates back to 2009 when the Grammy Awards were on and Kanye stole Taylor's limelight. I can't believe that's 10 years ago. 10 years ago. And then obviously it really reached uh, fever pitch when in 2016 Taylor was kind of caught out twisting the truth. There was that um, famous music video and lyric that said, I made that bitch famous, to which Taylor Swift Sing said, it. No, I'm not making the mistake you made last week. Oh, by the way, I accidentally pronounced bad Barbie and it's actually bad baby. Lots of people picked me up on that in the Facebook group and were laughing. I way prefer bad Barbie, but that's another point. Let's just rename her. Okay, back to this story though. (laughs) So Taylor came out and said, I had no idea about this famous lyric and it was turned into this uh, very, very public feud between her, Kanye, Kim. Kim then released a video showing that Taylor did approve some of the lyrics in Famous and even said that it would be funny and then they'd all come out together and say, oh, Taylor was in on it. It's not dramatic at all or controversial at all. So for Kim to now come out says a lot about how power works in the celebrity industry because apparently the bigwigs at Universal Music Group have said she's no longer able 
to have this ongoing feud with Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift is their priority. Therefore, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West need to shut up if they want to be on good terms with E. I would be surprised if this quote-unquote feud didn't rear its head again. I can't imagine this being a permanent thing just because it generates so much publicity, both good and bad, for both parties. But it reminds me... First and foremost, how real power in Hollywood is completely faceless and the ones that we come to know as powerful often hold much less power than we think. So we would assume someone like Kim Kardashian would hold mammoth power in that kind of industry. But it reminded me a lot, I remember, when the Harvey Weinstein story came out, right? And we, as young people who engage in the celebrity industry, pop culture industry, like watching movies, didn't have a good hold on who Harvey Weinstein was. And that's very interesting given how much power that he had at the time. And I think his victims or the survivors of a lot of his abuse were the ones that we would assume would hold power in that kind of scenario, but didn't at all. Absolutely. That's a really good parallel to draw. Yeah, I think it's also really fascinating that Taylor Swift is considered the bigger heavyweight Mm. and the bigger priority for someone like Universal. They're coming into this and going, we need to protect Taylor Swift and therefore we need to tell Kim Kardashian to shut up and move on. Well, it's all about money there, right? Because how lucrative must Taylor Swift be in comparison to the Kardashians if that's where their priority is? Well, I think as well that Taylor Swift is earning the company money. The Kardashians are probably earning more money net worth outside of E. Yeah. But the amount of money they're channeling into E isn't as much because they're earning endorsements on Instagram and that's where the majority of their income is coming from. That's very true. But I also think it's important here to to look at Taylor Swift and her her power in this sort of scenario, right? Because she holds so much more power in the music industry than I think anyone could possibly understand. And her stance on streaming has been very well documented. You know, she very famously pulled all her um, music from Spotify. She made Apple Music change their policy on paying artists because of her being outspoken about it. And so her leaving her record label, I think, came a lot down to who was going to pay streaming fees, who was going to support different artists. So there was obviously going to be heavy negotiations around which label she was going to go to. And I obviously think that in these negotiations, this could have been part of it, that people were trying so desperately to win her over, um, a different record label was trying to win her over, that they were willing to do this thing about Kim Kardashian that you're probably asking us to in order to get you on board. Because out of everything that has happened to Taylor Swift, Tom Hiddleston or whatever else you want to drag into it, the Jonas Brothers, there have been a few controversies that have muddied the Taylor Swift water over the last decade. The Kim Kardashian Kanye West video on Instagram was the biggest impact negative impact on her brand, for sure. Well, this is what makes me think that maybe she's moving away from that sort of whole reputation to a brand that she sort of leveraged off in the last year or two, which was the wholesome girl turned bad or the wholesome girl whose reputation did take a hit. I genuinely think she wants that wholesome image back. She's keeping her relationships very much under wraps and very private, which is very different to everything she's done before. Um, She herself is kind of going underground. She's not being as pervasive on Instagram. She's not being pervasive as much with that girl squad I think she wants her old brand back absolutely agree it's almost like we're going back to the Taylor Swift of 2013 2014 yes and so I think if this stands if this sort of non-feud or peace offering stands it will be interesting to see what else happens with Taylor and how this also plays out with her brand and what she does in order to get that brand back My plastic surgeon doesn't want me doing any activity where balls fly at my nose. Well, there goes your social life. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. As always, we're bringing you five stories from the news cycle that you may have missed. Mish, what have you got this week? 
I'm starting with my favorite story of the week because it's just so true and on point. Number one, how Meghan Markle's favorite avocado snack, beloved of all millennials, is fueling human rights abuses, drought and murder. That is from the Daily Mail. You're kidding. As far as long bows to draw, I'm going to say this is one of the longest I've seen. I think it's one of the most fucked up. How have we gotten to a point? I know that we talk about this almost every week in the quick and dirty. I know. How have we gotten to a point where we are blaming Meghan Markle's favorite snack for human rights abuses, drought and murder. I think that's my favourite part of the headline because she's not just fueling human rights abuses, it's also drought and murder. So it's just about anything you want to tick off. You know what as well? I reckon this headline was written by someone, they're like, bang a headline, and then someone in the editorial team has snuck in the beloved of all millennials so they're not slammed for... Interesting you say that because I think the first time I saw that headline, that part wasn't there. Yeah. So I think the first time it went online, it was how Meghan Markle's favourite avocado stack is fueling human rights abuses. And then they added it in to soften the blow, maybe. <laughs> Not that it really does. We're all lumped in with that too, by the way. Also, you're we- fueling human rights abuses by eating avocado. I know that many people who aren't millennials who love avocado. Can we let this stupid trope go that millennials are wasting all their money on avocado? It feels really 2016. Of all the things I'm wasting my money on as well, avocado is not there. I will give mm. you a list of other things. <laughs> it's probably um, variations of cheese, if I'm honest. It's probably Yours. halloumi. I reckon overpriced cocktails <laughs> has to be up there <laughs> when I think I have more money than I do when I'm out. Espresso martinis are the real 100%. culprit here. That should be the face of millennial debt. All right. Story number two. GoFundMe raises thousands of unpaid fire festival workers featured in Netflix film. That's from ABC. This was probably the one happy story to come out of that documentary, do you think? Yeah, it is. I know that the woman in the documentary who owns the cafe, I think her name's Marianne, she was given $160,000 or something ludicrous, which is amazing because she was so fucked over. Completely. And also I think we need to remember from this documentary that they were promised a contract that was going to be renewed year after year after year and that this money was going to be funneled into the um, economy there. And it clearly didn't. It clearly drained a lot of money from the economy. So even 160 grand is probably not going to match what they were expecting. Not to make this too serious either, but it says a lot about colonization and white people, rich white people going into a very impoverished or marginalized community and just taking and taking whatever they want completely and i think that's why people were so troubled by this documentary because there were so many layers to it so many themes to it it would actually be a genuinely good film to study at school i know that sounds stupid but the amount of stuff there is to unpick and unpack is huge absolutely agree number three anne hathaway tricked ellen's audience into a fake citrus healing ritual before telling them never to put something in their mouths just because a celebrity tells them to Oh, I need oxygen. That's from Insider. That's why are they doing a long headline? Such a long headline, Insider. That's only a Daily Mail kind of headline. A Daily Mail editor's got a new job at that Insider. (laughs) Definitely. Tell me about this story because it kind of went over my head. So Anne Hathaway was on Ellen, spruiking something, I'm sure. I'm not quite sure that I remember exactly what. Probably a film that she's Uh, in. Yeah, no, she's in a new movie with... um, uh, Matthew McConaughey and it got absolutely slammed on the New York Times today. I saw a headline that was wonderful. They called it an absolute mess. Wow. Yeah, bad reviews. Not great. But she basically got everyone in the audience, including Alan DeGeneres, to unpick, I think it was a clementine uh, fruit. I don't know, is that a mandarin? 
Are they the same things? Don't ask me. All right, let's just call it a mandarin. Everyone had to um, kind of like unpick their mandarin while she was speaking, going on about this citrus healing book that she read from Dr. Q, who is a made-up doctor, and that if you hold it in your mouth and breathe in and out, it heals your body and makes you feel better. So everyone in the audience is puffing on these mandarins, including Alan. And she's like, do you feel it, guys? Does everyone feel better? And the audience is kind of like, yeah, I guess. Before she goes, I made it all up. You're all idiots. Never put something in your mouth just because a celebrity says you should. It's a good story, I have to say. I mean, there's something like mildly egocentric about doing that and sort of uh, proving your own power, I guess. But it's for an important cause. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because Anne Hathaway often gets a bad rap for being self-indulged. I'm interested to hear whether that's actually a legitimate thing or if that's our own fault. I think there's certain quotes that she said in the past that have made people feel like she's a bit arrogant or a bit self-centered. But recently she's sort of circumvented those by apologizing and sort of regretting some of the things she did that... I don't know. Played into that narrative. 100%. Yeah. All right. Story four. I am so interested to hear your take on this. Chris Hemsworth just released a fitness app. Here's how to download it. That's from Men's Health. I don't want to be negative because you're going to call me jet lag grumpy, but why the fuck does he need money for a fitness app? Well, that's my, that was my first reaction to this for sure. I think a bit of background for anyone who's interested. This fitness app is in collaboration with Loop. That's the company that does TiffXO and it's the company that does Emily Sky Fit. So they have a background in using Instagram influencers and maybe reality TV personalities to launch these apps. Not a Hollywood star. I don't think I want to be critical about it because he might be genuinely really interested in health and fitness. And if this is a passion for him and if it's going to make money, why not? I know that in the promotional video, he even used Elsa Pataki, his wife, to give it a feminine twist as well for the women who want to join the app. It's going to be successful. He's clearly very interested in working out. Have you seen his biceps lately? I'm not going to begrudge him for taking an opportunity that he might well have a lot of passion about. True. I think I haven't actually thought about this story at all. This is the first time I've heard it. So the thoughts that are coming out of my mouth are straight from my brain, which is shooting from the hip, which is always dangerous. I guess the first thing I can think right now is I have a tiny issue, not a huge issue, like I'm not going to lose sleep on it, with someone like Chris Hemsworth, who is so hugely successful in Hollywood with such a massive career, sort of coming into an industry that could be serviced by other people who don't have, that don't have as much success or as much money as him. I just, I don't like the idea of him squashing Australians doing the same thing. I think you're being a bit of a bleeding heart about Do you think? that. Yeah, I think this is just the way the economy and capitalism works. No, completely. But like, come on. No, I, I it's get it. It's not the it. most articulate argument I've <laughs> ever had, but come on. <laughs> I get it. I just think if you look at the people even behind his app, the doctors and the PTs and everything that he's gotten involved are very successful, very I mean, you can't be a critically acclaimed PT, but very well-renowned personal trainers, health professionals, doctors. So I don't personally have an issue with it. Watching the promotional video potentially made me want to sign up for a free trial, but I'm not sure if I want to admit that to 20,000 listeners. $20 a month. So if you compare that to my gym membership, I, well, I won't ever give up my gym membership because I love my gym. Thank you. Anytime fitness. But I, fuck you, (laughs) you get a free gym membership out of this. (laughs) Um, I pay $16 a week at any time. And if I was to do Chris Hemsworth instead, I'd be saving money. 
I won't. True. I'd love if I came back in three weeks and was like, I'm actually a convert. I've just signed up to Chris Hemsworth app. I don't think I will because I can't now. And also I still feel a bit meh about it. But interesting story. Good one. (laughs) My last story. You put this in so you'll have to explain this to me. Yes. Why Britain is outraged about an Oscar-nominated short film. That is from the New York Times. This is very interesting because I found that the Oscar nominations a little um, anticlimactic this year. Do you feel the same? I have not even read them. Exactly. So there's a film or a short film that was made in Britain about the murder of, of young James Bolger. You, do you, you yes. know that story? And it was made without the consent of his family and his family friends and they really didn't want the film made. It was about sort of John Venables, one of the killers, who was young at the time too. Um, it's a really messed up story. And it was nominated for an Oscar and the family are devastated by that because they sort of signed a petition and sort of circulated a petition in the lead up to the Oscars saying we didn't want this film made. It shouldn't be celebrated if we didn't want it made, if they're taking advantage of our story. And yet it was still nominated. I find the whole thing very hard and difficult for me to get my head around because I don't know which side of the fence I sit on. I do think that the family should have the say here. And if it's a story that they don't want told, then maybe it shouldn't be told. But on the flip side, if we allowed every story to not be told based on people not wanting it to be made, we'd have no stories at all. What a conundrum. Yeah. I feel like it's it's basically the exact same conversation around making a murderer. If Teresa Hulbuck's family didn't want that documentary to be made, should we have listened? Does the benefit of sharing the story with the public outweigh the cost to the family who have to relive their trauma through no fault of their own. Well, I think we can listen because it's there, but then I think what's the responsibility of of someone like or something like the Academy to acknowledge this as a helpful, productive, important movie? I don't know what their responsibility is either, and they clearly don't feel a responsibility to it. They are just considering it as any other short film. Do you watch true crime things knowing when, it, like, if a family's come out and said, we don't want this, would you watch it? Truthfully, I don't really watch or listen to true crime at yeah, all. Yeah, true. Would you watch this movie? No. Okay. I wouldn't. Mm. Would you? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I think I was quite upset when I realized that I watched the entire thing of Making a Murderer without knowing that Teresa's family yeah. didn't want it made. So I think things like that are really crucial to take into account. You shouldn't be guilt-tripped if you watch it and you're genuinely Absolutely interested. Absolutely not. But I think it is something to always keep in the back of your mind that this was without the consent of the family. It's without the family's voices in it and therefore it can be really quite biased or immoral. Granted, though, as well for you and I, we're not huge true crime consumers. It's not a big passion for us. So it's very easy for me to say, no, I wouldn't watch that film because it's not kind of the thing that I would go and watch anyway. Mm. So I think there's that to keep in mind too. Yeah, true. That's all I've got for the Quick and Dirty this week. Thank you so much. Anna Wintour was in Melbourne this week to watch the tennis and give a rousing speech at the Australian Open Inspiration Series. She was political, she was funny, and we welcomed her with open arms. She was, it seems, a far cry from the person we thought she was in A Devil Wears Prada. Michelle, did you consider our reception to her different than usual? I can't believe how much she penetrated the news cycle. Mm. And how much everyone cared about what she was doing, where she was going every day, what she was saying. I mean, she's always been a bit of an icon, but I didn't realise how much that really affected Australian culture and how much Australians would take that on, given that she is a US magazine editor. I know, which proves to me how much more. I mean, we knew how much more 
she was than just a US magazine editor. But she is, I guess, exactly as you said, an icon. For me, it started with this idea of the mystery of the unsmiling woman, I guess. And that is how she's always been considered, the woman with sunglasses and the woman that's not smiling. And I think similar to how we used to consider Posh Beckham, I think, is that we don't know what to do with a woman who we don't see smile much. And we pop her into this like iron woman box and we leave her there, assuming that she doesn't actually have a personality apart from the fact she's a bitch. And I wonder if this is why we've embraced her so completely while she's in Melbourne, because people have realized that she is layered and funny and has a personality. Shock horror, a woman who doesn't smile very deliberately in public, has personality. Yeah, but even myself, I know that we can put that on other people, but when I heard her quotes uh, at the inspirational series that she did with Australian Open, I was surprised at how candid and how transparent and honest and brutal she was with some of her opinions. And I've known about Anna Wintour for ages, and yet for her to actually get up on that stage and say what she did about people like Margaret Court took me by surprise. It did actually, I have to say, it did take me by surprise too. And I wonder if she's getting to a point in her career where she has no issue saying those things now. I mean, she doesn't give a lot of interviews. She doesn't do a lot of things. So she rarely makes the news for things that she says. I know when she did an interview with Amy LaRocca for The Cut years ago, Amy LaRocca said in her commentary in the piece that Anna Wintour's fame is born not only out of success, but of performative silence, which I think plays into a lot of why we've embraced her this week is because we're suddenly turning around thinking Anna Wintour speaks and she speaks in a way that we kind of like. Mm, agree. I think we're also really informed by Meryl Streep in A Devil Wears Prada mm. that that book was obviously written by Anna Wintour's former assistant and openly largely based on that assistant's experience under Anna Wintour at Vogue. So even during the film's production in 2005, Anna was really not keen for anyone in the fashion industry to contribute to that movie because she knew how much that would affect her personal brand and how much that would affect people's opinions of her. What defined her personal brand, I think. Absolutely. My sister was quite funny this week. She's not hugely interested in fashion, not hugely interested in pop culture, which makes for an interesting relationship between the two of us. And she was texting me because she hasn't been at work. And so she's just been sitting in front of daytime television because most people have been going to work. And she said, I love Anna Wintour. This interview is so amazing. She's doing a great job at being self-deprecating and athletic and funny. It was just, it was very overbearing, these text messages. (laughs) She was very bored. And I said, did you know that she was the character that Meryl Streep played in Devil Wears Prada. And she said, basically, I hate Devil Wears Prada. Now they've got Anna all wrong. Oh, (laughs) Because I was like, imagine seeing both of those things and thinking these are completely at odds with each other. Yeah. Well, they so closely mimicked Anna's life in that film that Meryl Streep's office was so similar to Anna Wintour's real office that she had it redecorated straight after the film. I imagine the true Anna Wintour is somewhere between the two. But for me, it's curious about how, or it says a lot about how a woman in that industry must have had to climb the ranks very quickly in order to succeed in the kind of person that she had to be. I wonder for us if we've embraced her because we're not able to see women as as versatile as they are. So we see the Iron Woman and we think that's all she is. And I think that's the problem with maybe how we view female bosses. She said, Anna Wintour said in a Forbes profile a few years back, again, one of the few profiles she's ever done or interviews she's done, in some cases there are stereotypes about women. I often don't hear men talked about in the same way. And that was the question put to her, how do you feel when people call you intimidating? Yeah. So I think when we look at Anna Wintour and call her an ice woman or how cold she is, 
How many male CEOs or bosses or editors are exactly the same way? But we always want women to be warm and maternal. And if they're not warm and maternal, we don't know what box to put them in. They're quite befuddling to us. Which is weird because she is maternal too. If Of any of the things that she's spoken about in her private life, she has spoken about her love of her children and how, how important they are in her life. I genuinely wonder if it's because she doesn't smile in public. Genuinely. Mm. I know we talk a lot about gendered words, right? And words that we would use to describe men that we wouldn't necessarily use to describe women. And a lot of the ones that people talk about we don't necessarily agree with. But I think intimidating is one of the ones where I can't think of ever describing a man as necessarily intimidating. Can mm, you? Not really. Or I mean, as much. I mean, when you hear of male bosses like or alpha males, say Donald Trump, you don't hear intimidating, you hear other words. Yeah, exactly. I think when I read this piece on The Guardian by Jess Cartner-Morley, which I actually think you read too because I just skimmed your notes. Yes, <laughs> I, wondered, I did. I'll be interested to see if we both pulled the same quotes that we loved because this was my favourite quote from her piece. And she said, Wintour's three-decade reign in the front row has seen fashion's place in popular culture expand from a niche, mostly female interest, an updated version of embroidery, if you like, into a pop culture channel that the whole world is watching. And I think that paints a very good picture of her role. It's not just fashion, it's culture. Absolutely. The quote that I liked from that, I think it says a lot about the aesthetics of power. When Jess Cartner-Morley wrote, she rarely carries a handbag. 20 years ago, she always had a Filofax on her lap at shows, but now she just has a phone. It is an uncluttered, sleek aesthetic that the true alpha power players use to distinguish themselves from the rank and file of those with lumpy, umbrella and gym kit tote bags. That is so true. The way she presents herself... Every inch of her appearance is about power. The sleek bob, apparently she gets the bob blow-dried twice a day, morning and night. She will never go to an event without a brand new, fresh blow-dry. She never has a hair out of place. She's always got her sunglasses on. She never has a bag with her because she doesn't need one. She's simply got her phone. It is such a meticulous manicured aesthetic that all says power. 1,000%. If I go anywhere, I have like seven bags. But it makes you think, right? And I know this sounds like we're getting into the minutia, but I think the minutia matters when it comes to Anna Wintour, is what does she do about lipstick? Well, clearly there's someone there to fix that problem for her. What does she do about her bob getting out of place? Well, clearly there's someone there to fix that too. There is a solution to every problem which screams power. She's got three full-time assistants. Yeah, I know. Three. And I was reading this going, oh, she doesn't have a handbag. I've got about seven and there are probably about a million lip glosses and lipsticks and half-chewed muesli bars and hair ties and bobby pins in every single one. Okay, what about the portable charger? Like, clearly she's got <laughs> she's got that sorted too. Like, it genuinely blows my mind because she is an embodiment of power more than fashion, I think. She is so much more about power than fashion. I think the sunglasses prove that. And I wonder if we would take her as seriously as a boss and as an icon if she wasn't so famously cool in both senses of the word. Like, can a woman be nice and polite and likable and brim with power? Maybe now, I don't know, maybe the Laura Browns of InStyle are all of those things, but I don't think she could have been all of those things 30 years ago. And even still, I'm not even sure you could do that now. I don't think to compare Laura Brown, Laura Brown obviously has power as the editor of InStyle, but- Nobody in the media, in my opinion, is as powerful as Anna Wintour. Not women, anyway. I can't think of any other woman in print media or magazine media. Or kind of any industry that carries the same sort of gravitas that she does. 
It's interesting to me that almost a year ago or maybe eight, ten months ago, we were having a conversation about that huge rumour that she was meant to be leaving and that sort of blew away. I would recommend, because when that happened, there was some brilliant commentary about how important Anna Wintour is to the industry and culture, especially to New York. Um, I would recommend reading one of the best pieces of writing I've, I've ever read, which is Imagining a World Without Anna by Vanessa Friedman for the New York Times. It is a long piece of writing. I'm going to put it in the Facebook group when this episode goes up because it is one of my favorite stories ever. I don't think you have to love fashion or Vogue or even Anna to love that piece. The other thing I would recommend as well is the September issue documentary about how they put the September issue together, which does give you sort of a maybe a little more of a 360 um, sense of what she is like. I need to watch that. And Have I you need to read that. I haven't read the Vanessa Friedman profile either. It's very long. I remember at the time, I actually haven't read it since, but it is, I remember thinking it's a long, really good piece. The other thing I did want to raise right, while Anna Wintour is in Melbourne is the absolute disdain I have for the many crusty old men who are pretending they don't know who Anna Wintour is while she's here. I know Chris Kenny wrote for the Oz this week that she was, and I quote, unknown to many of us until yesterday. And that was followed by a tweet by Alexander Downer, our former foreign minister, who had sort of an anecdote he put on Twitter. And he said, ah, Anna Wintour, I was introduced to her at a function in London last year. Hadn't heard of her, so politely asked her what she did. She turned her back and walked away. Can't blame her, I guess, but shockingly grand woman. It felt patronizing and stupid. And Rebecca Sullivan, who um, used to work at News.com, is now at Now to Love, tweeted, have heard numerous old, ordinary-looking white guys this week proudly proclaim they have no idea who Anna Wintour is. It's like when people boast that they've never watched an episode of The Bachelor. Being ignorant about pop culture is not something to be proud of. Oh, my God, I love that. Well, it just plays into this idea that women's interests can and should be derided and that they don't matter and that they sort of exist in their own bubble of frivolity and lack meaning. But we're talking about a cultural phenomenon here and someone with the ability to shape psyche and trend and conversation and people are pretending they don't know who she is. Isn't she the editor? director of Condé Nast. Yes. So she's not just the editor of Vogue. She is the almost highest person at Condé Nast, which is one of the biggest companies in New York. And one of the biggest companies that shapes what we think and what we buy and what we believe. Exactly. So for men to come out, Alexander Downer, how many people know what Alexander Downer fucking does? Exactly. Oh, all right. What I really want to talk to you about is the Margaret Court debate, because this is the thing. No matter how many men want to come out and say she doesn't have much power, nobody knows who she is, she made one comment about Margaret Court that then went all over the internet. You were going to say viral. Yeah, I was. Then I had to come up with some type of synonym for it. All over the internet is what I'm going for. I want to talk to you about this because Anna Wintour did come out and say that Margaret Court's views and opinions on same-sex marriage mean that we should reconsider her name being on one of the main arenas at the Australian Open. Yeah. What is your thinking behind that? Interesting. I actually don't have a hard and fast opinion on it. I have to be totally honest about that. I think it is interesting to me when people from other places or other countries come and say things that we've been talking about for years. It reminds me of sort of when John Oliver does a monologue about what's going on in Australia. And we get innately embarrassed when other people notice our flaws, which I think is why this took hold of conversation so much. Do I think it should be renamed? I don't know. For me, the only thing I can think of in this debate, right, is where do we draw the line? At what point does hate speech, and I'm going to call it hate speech, I'm going to call Margaret Court's comments hate speech, I feel comfortable doing that, become incongruent with being celebrated as an athlete. 
I think, right, and I would be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but if I was a professional athlete and I was forced to play in an arena under the name of someone who actually did not like that I existed as I was, I wouldn't feel comfortable walking into that arena. Imagine if it was the name of a man who hated women and you had to play in that court. I don't know if I would feel good about that. I know I wouldn't feel good about that. I wonder to what length I would go to campaign for that to be changed. See, I totally get your point of view and I absolutely believe in same-sex marriage and I hate homophobia. Of course I do. I'm not sure we can call it hate speech. She doesn't come out and say she hates gay people. She says she doesn't think they should get married, which is slightly different. I think it's semantics, truly, because I think if you're going to deny someone a basic human right, then I think you can say that that's hate speech. Okay. My issue is that the Margaret Court Arena was not named after a philanthropist or an artist or a writer. It was named after a really magnificent tennis player. So simply because her views don't align with the majority anymore, they did for a long time, same-sex marriage only just come in. Does that really mean we need to turf her out? There's no monopoly on how to think. Just because you and I are sitting here and totally believe in same-sex marriage and totally oppose homophobia, I'm not sure that we should silence someone and strip them of any accolade they earned while they were good at their job. It was her job and that was the reason. She probably was against same-sex marriage when the court was named after her. Should we do that purely because their religious beliefs and personal beliefs don't align with our own? I'm not sure. I'm not saying I'm black or white on the issue, but I think as soon as we try to monopolize how to think, when 30% of Australians voted no to same-sex marriage. This is why I'm very conflicted about it because you say we're stripping accolades and I I guess it depends on your definition of accolades. I mean, nobody's taking the the titles that she won from her. We're actually just, we're taking an honour. Like I think that's the difference is it should be considered an honour for your name to be on a stadium and whether you deserve that specific honour I don't know. I could, I think I'm actually leaning towards the fact it should be stripped, which is surprising me as I'm having this conversation. <laughs> um, but I just, I just, I don't know where we draw the line. And that goes to both sides. I'd really love to hear from you guys about this. If you are gay, I'd love for you to come into our Facebook group and share your opinion. Would you feel comfortable walking into an arena named Margaret Court Arena or would it not really matter to you and it's not the top of your agenda when it comes to progressing gay rights in Australia. I'm happy that Anna Wintour has raised this. I mean, I think it's going to keep coming up and it's going to keep coming up and I don't know if anything will ever change, but I do love that it's someone like Anna Wintour coming to Melbourne, dropping a little bit of a bomb and then walking out. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that, Anna. going for baseball now. <laughs> we just wanted to quickly interrupt this episode to ask you one small favour. We're in the running for the Australian Podcast Awards most popular podcast, but we need your help. And if you have a second, just click the link in our bio and vote. We're currently in second place. So we're the underdog. And if you love an underdog like we do, just hop in and send us a vote. We love you forever and ever. Okay. Okay. Back to the show. This week, glamour model and media personality Katie Price won the support of British MPs in her fight against online abuse and trolling. Harvey's Law, named after the model's 16-year-old son, calls on the government to make online abuse a specific criminal offence and create a register for offenders. Zara, what's your take on trolling and should it be a criminal offence? That's a very hard question. I hate trolling, obviously. I think that's the obvious. But in terms of whether it should be criminalised, I don't know. Trolling to the point of stalking, sure. 
Mm. Trolling to the point of harassment, sure. But I don't know. I think it would depend to me on how we define trolling, the level of abuse that's considered illegal. So I guess maybe my answer is yes in its extreme forms. But I guess the thing about trolling is often it's not the extreme forms that hit you the hardest. Yes. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. I think first I'll give a bit more context. I think my favorite part about this proposal is how important it is for people with disability. Yeah. So Katie Price's son, Harvey, has a number of disabilities that affect his quality of life. And one branch of her proposal is that it must be possible to see if someone has been convicted of a hate crime on the grounds of disability before employing them to work with disabled people. So if the government does does that, I completely am behind that. I think if you have um, criticised and sent hate to someone online because of their disability, which is a huge issue, multiple studies show that disability online is an incredibly hard feat. And I think for disabled people to exist on social media and in the internet, it's a completely different experience to our own because the amount of vile abuse sent their way is disgraceful. It's a a harder place to feel safe for sure. Absolutely. So I totally get behind that. My concern has to do with a bit of censorship that what, what constitutes hate speech and what constitutes criticism. Here we come back to Margaret Court. Um, So I totally understand when it comes to people with disability, I totally understand there needs to be some type of registry to make sure those people can never work in the industry itself. Trolling is a really bizarre experience. What is your backstory with it? Um, It's interesting. I think it's come a long way. Having worked as a journalist online for a couple of years now, it would be remiss of us to say that it hadn't occurred. I think it's definitely got more intense since we put our personalities at the forefront of what we do, which is, you know, our absolute choice. I think, I mean, sometimes it hits me, sometimes it hurts me, sometimes it really doesn't. And I don't think there's any hard and fast rule about the ones that penetrate and the ones that don't. Yeah, I think this is something that probably has affected us personally that we've never really spoken about on the podcast before. Yeah, or we haven't actually spoken about it that much in depth together. No, um, trolling is, as I said before, a really bizarre experience. Um, It's unusual because at first you often find it really funny and stupid and then slowly it eats away at you. That's what I find myself. Mm. My first gut reaction is, oh, who cares what that person says? Who cares that they have sent me this disgraceful message? But I will never forget at one of my best friend's birthday parties last year in the beginning of March, I had received an just an onslaught of hate online for an article that I put up that day. The article was, itself was so stupid. I'd gone to my friend's engagement party and I'd worn white. Hmm. And I wrote an article, a funny, lighthearted article about how I never knew that was breaking a dress code to wear white to the engagement party. I know that it is to go to a wedding in white. The number of people who came at me and called me a slut, called me a stupid bitch, called me ignorant, called me um, a terrible friend on my Instagram in public comments, but also to my writer page privately, made me so anxious. And by the time I was at this birthday party and I'd had a few drinks, I actually couldn't deal with it anymore and I had a mental breakdown I need to go home and cry for the rest of the night. So I think that's really interesting that when you first see it, it's like, oh, it's okay. But sometimes it can just keep going, keep going, keep going to the point where you actually can't yeah. rationalize it anymore. 100%. And I, it is interesting the kinds of things that do get you. I would hazard a guess that the things that affect you are very different to the things that affect me. I mean, my favorite comment ever, and this weirdly didn't affect me, but it was my first ever troll comment was just a review on one of the first ever podcasts we did for Mamma Mia. And it was just, Sarah McDonald is rude and not funny. 
And I just thought just then, I mean, they're not that far from the truth. (laughs) Um, And also it's going on my headstone. But I think there's this assumption that trolls are a different breed and I don't think they are. I would consider blatant criticism without context and without giving anyone a right of reply trolling. I cannot read our Apple reviews anymore. It makes me too anxious. I know that hardly any of that's trolling, but there are a couple of comments which are very nasty. I can't read them. Would you consider that trolling? Because I'm interested in our definitions of trolling. I think that's trolling to the point where you're saying something to stir shit where you don't give somebody a right of reply. Yeah. I think if you're saying it with like constructive criticism in mind, that's totally fine. We get constructive criticism all the time. But when you're being nasty and you're criticizing someone's voice, someone's appearance, the way someone is born – That is trolling to me. Because I want to go back to the point that I just made about, you know, trolls not being a completely different breed. Because I think we've had an experience very recently where we are more than sure we know somebody who set up a fake account to troll us just as a once-off. And we're more than sure we know this person personally. And it's interesting because I that didn't affect me so much, but I just couldn't stop thinking about the fact that we know this person, we know who they are, we know their feelings, we know that they're human too, they know us, they know our quirks. I'm just not sure at what point you sit around and decide that this is something you want to do. And I think that's an important point to realize is that they're not always these evil people that are angry and typing alone in a dark room. It could be people you know. And in fact, I think a lot of people could be so unhappy and so low on self-esteem that they could be driven to do a similar thing. Absolutely. And that really rattled us because we're pretty sure we've spent a fair bit of time with the person who set up that account and that's upsetting. But I did read a really interesting wrap-up of studies that have gone on about trolling in the New York Times. And the finding was that people use the internet to get more of what they do not get enough in everyday life. So while people have been socialized to resist being impulsive in the real world on the internet, they cave to their temptations and lash out. That is so, so true. Mm. My personal experience with trolling goes beyond this and this is a weird example but for anyone who follows us on social media will know that we've been asking our listeners to vote in the Ozpod awards recently and that we are in second place which is amazing the not amazing thing that i've needed to grapple with is that the person in first place is someone behind a group that once trolled me Mm. when I was younger I was 18 the group for people not familiar was called face beef I'm sure many many of you have heard of that before basically they put up a photo of me on face beef and asked all of their hundreds of thousands of followers to rate me from one to ten and from that incident I got rape threats I got death threats I made the mistake of having the university I was going to University of Melbourne in my bio at the time so I had one man say he was going to wait at the tram stop for me to come out Um, it was probably one of the worst days of my entire life. I called the police. The police could do nothing about it. So now I'm seeing this guy who he might not have been the one to put my photo up, but he was behind this group that was notorious for online bullying and trolling people. Now he's in the position above us. And I'm like, I don't know how to feel like uh, you might've moved on. And we were probably both young. He might've been 18 at the time that he was behind face beef. 
but I was 18 and that was one of the worst days I've ever experienced. Yeah, and that has a lasting effect on you and not on them. And I think it speaks to this idea that people get away with this and, and bad things happen to good people and and people do bad things and they genuinely do get away with it. It's often because they're not these evil people that we would like to think they are. They just make terrible decisions in that moment. I think in this case as well, tabloids have a lot to answer for, genuinely. I think they dehumanise celebrities to the point where we forget they are people. And uh, you sent me an interview by Broadly and it was Amanda Knox interviewing Misha Barton about her experience with revenge porn. And Misha Barton talks about this link between the barrage of negative publicity she got um, before the revenge porn and perhaps the lack of sympathy that came in after the revenge porn incident. Because I don't think that we gave Misha Barton the benefit of the doubt as much as she deserved because people didn't take her seriously because tabloids had reduced her to a celebrity and not a human. Well, when we report in the way that is currently being reported for example Meghan Markle we give people a license to be so nasty yeah and be so critical for no good reason and we still struggle this with this in the Facebook group that some people will try and get posts through where we don't see the point it's literally just to point out someone's flaw or point out something that one influencer did when it it doesn't help anyone yeah. It makes that influencer feel shit and it makes everyone else feel like they're partaking in gossip for a hot second before everyone else goes away, forgets about the conversation that just took place while the influencer is in tatters because she's just had her life and her choices and her personality ripped to shreds. No, and I think the point of this podcast, and we say this all the time, but I think it's worth being a broken record, is it's these conversations are all well and good when you're playing the idea, the theme, not the man or the woman in, in a lot of these cases. Um, and these conversations are important when you are playing a system, not a woman. And just because somebody puts their face out there doesn't mean they deserve X, Y, and Z. Simon Fraser University did some research right, that I read on the conversation this week. And they looked at a large data set of comments posted in response to online articles in Canada. So they looked at um, the new- a newspaper called The Globe and Mail, which is like sort of the main English daily newspaper in Canada. And they discovered that although they're certainly trolling, there is also a significant amount of constructive comments in news articles. And they predicted that only about 10 to 15% of online news comments are toxic. So I found this interesting for a few reasons. Firstly, 10 to 15% is a lot to consider toxic, which contains offensive language, insults or attacks. Secondly, it's interesting to me that trolling is considered so important on news articles because I think that doesn't take into account influencer culture, which is where we are now. And I think trolling has become far more of an issue the more a person becomes the brand because the trolling then becomes personal. And I think that means the error of personal brands means this issue is only getting worse. And the interesting thing is that I'm sure some listeners are hearing what we're saying and thinking, well, why put yourself online? Yeah. If you don't want to be trolled, why put yourself in the position where you're sharing enough to be trolled? And I always think if we wouldn't tolerate this behavior in person, why would we tolerate it anywhere else? How is the online sphere any different. If we wouldn't stand by someone walking up to a woman on the street and yelling that he wants to rape her on the street, why do we then put up with it online? It's a great point. Mm. We, we absolutely shouldn't. And then this is where I get to the point where, you know, we wonder whether it should be made illegal, whether it should be criminalized. There was a piece on CNN from 2013, but for me, it was still interesting and relevant. And writer university psychology professor John Suler said trolls most likely have problems with depression, low self-esteem and anger. 
So I wonder what do we do with that information? Is it not worth sussing out the profile of the most common kind of troll and treating that? Or is that too simplistic? Is it not look trying to look at the cause rather than the effect? Mm, I know that people like Michelle Laurie as well have often reached out to their trolls and yeah. found out about their lives. And that is true. A lot of them do come from quite dark existences, I but guess. But then maybe there's not a profile of a troll. I mean, like we said before, we think that we've been trolled by people we know and there could be absolutely normal people that walk the street that could troll. So maybe that's the hardest part is that you can't pin this down to a certain type of person. You can only pin it down to a certain couple of traits. Do you have a favourite troll comment that you've gotten over the Definitely years? Definitely rude and not funny. My I think favorite. that has to, like, <laughs> I mean, we're really getting to the crux of the issue there. <laughs> rude and not funny. My favourite is Michelle Andrews has a really flat face. It's just like... Also, I also apparently look far older than I am. Someone told me I once look 45, not 25. Well, I'm 24, so... They're just creative but strange insults. Yeah. Very creative but strange. Yeah. Would you Would you reach out to a troll? Uh, No. I think for my anxiety, it's better if I just... No, I think it's better for everybody if you block and delete, which is what a lot of critics of of criminalizing trolling say is that unfortunately ignoring is the only way to go about it Mm. um but i do think the more we talk about it and the more we give rise to the idea that these people aren't just evil that it actually could be your friends doing this the more we understand the kind of the kind of forces behind it absolutely i think that's all we've got time for today i think it is thank you so much for listening to this episode of shameless i couldn't even tell you what episode we're up to right now would we say 40 44 oh been quite a while there you go thank you guys so so much for listening as always we will be in the facebook group shameless podcast Pod, 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 podcast community. I'm going to say that again for those who, you know, missed that entire thing. What was that? We're going to be in the Facebook group Shameless Podcast community. We will also be on Instagram at Shameless Podcast and we will also be in your ears on Thursday. Woo, so excited for it. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for all your support and again for getting behind the Ultra Tune campaign. We will be back on Thursday and then Monday and then we're never really going anywhere ever, <laughs> to be honest. Bye, guys. Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.